There's just something as humans about being around a table, isn't there? About being together. There's a certain presence that you and I share when we sit down around a table and have a meal together. It's always more significant than even these moments because there's a special presence there. We love, right, getting our friends together and going to Armature Works or The Independent or Fresh Kitchen or Taco Dirty. Come on, somebody. Let's go. I'm hungry. Or our back patio or our dining room table or the neighbor's house. But we do that almost always around a meal. I don't know if you've ever thought about the significance of how much time we spend around a table with people over a meal. It's amazing to me, really. There's a lot of reasons for that that I won't go into, but I want to go into what I think is the main reason that being around a table with people over a meal is so significant. And I actually want to encourage you to do it some more. But I believe... That the main reason being around a table over a meal with people is that it's because it's wrapped up, that moment is wrapped up in the spiritual significance of what I'll refer to today as radically ordinary hospitality. You say radically and ordinary do not go together. And you would be correct, except that the table... Radical. I mean, it, what is radical about sharing a meal together? Nothing. A normal meal isn't radical. And yet, if we pay attention to who we are as human beings, we will recognize why that ordinary act is actually so radical. I think Eugene Peterson can help us here. I'm going to put a quote on the screen. And he was ruminating about his wife. He was writing about his wife and how amazing his wife of decades was to him. I love that. And he said that he really only needed one word to describe her. And then like a good preacher, he wrote a whole chapter on her. Because that's what we do. We're like, I just have one thing I want to say. And then it takes 45 minutes to say it. I love that. But the word that he said... He needed to describe his wife was this word, hospitality, hospitality. Why? He went on to say this just a few sentences later about her, and that will be on the screen for you. Here's what Eugene said. But it is hospitality that goes far beyond making beds and preparing meals. If hospitality is not to be secularized into the hospitality industry or privatized into having the Smiths over for dinner, it will require intentionality, imagination, and context. And the context, he says, is a worshiping community. The thing that takes an ordinary meal into an extraordinary experience is the people. It's how we're made. Hospitality then is radical in the sense that we believe 
That ordinary hospitality around a table over a meal is actually very spiritual. And we believe that to be true. We believe that that place is sacred because the table is one of the places God has decided to participate with his people. I am, of course, talking about the communion table or the Eucharist or whatever you grew up knowing it as. And I want to focus our attention for just a moment on three important reflections about the communion table, about the spiritual significance of what lies beneath a little piece of foil. Why does a little wafer and a little wine matter so much? Because frankly, they seem extremely ordinary, don't they? As a matter of fact, I joke often that this is a pathetic excuse for bread. It's more like styrofoam. But what happens that we would take that and experience it as though it has great spiritual significance? What is taking place around this table that we share as the body of Christ? Three important reflections. First comes from St. Paul explaining this radical reality to his friends in Corinth. So he's writing to his friends a church in, the Cor- in, Cor- in Corinth, which is a city in the Middle East that was much like our city, growing lots of secular ideas, lots of different religions. And he's writing to these people, and most of the time the church jumps to 1 Corinthians 11 where it talks about the communion table. But you cannot go to 11 without stopping at 10. Because remember, this was a letter being written to friends. And when you go to 1 Corinthians 10, you find out what this radical reality is. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. It says this, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, here it is, a participation in the blood of Christ. Mystery. Imagination. Context. That cup, just being a cup with juice or wine, isn't anything unless God shows up. Right? And so Paul's explaining this, that that this is the place where God chooses to participate with his people. Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Many of us in this room grew up believing that it's simply a symbol. And I want to suggest that, yes, this is a symbol. Yes, this is where we remember But it is also where God chooses to participate. It is also where we participate with him. It is the natural way into the supernatural. And what comes out of that participation is what makes this kind of hospitality so radical. Look at what the next verse says in verse 17. 
Because there's one loaf. Come on, church. Who's the loaf? I mean, there's just one word you have to say today. What is it? Jesus, Jesus, right? Like Sunday school answer. You can't get this one wrong. Because there's one loaf. Because Jesus is who he is. And we could spend a lot of time unpacking that. But I will refrain for the sake of time. You're welcome. Because I just talked about taco dirty and now you're hungry. Because there's one loaf. Because of Jesus. Listen to this. What happens at that radically ordinary table? What happens when this bread and wine is participating with Jesus? What happens there? Look at this. We who are many. Love this. We who are many. Are one body because we all share one loaf. Being around the table is wrought with spirituality because we are one people. So the communion table brings us together as one body and one people in Jesus. And so it's at this table we're reminded. And we participate in our connectedness. And so if you're taking notes, number one is that we're one body because there's only one Jesus. And that might seem like not a big deal. You're like, I already know that. But can I just suggest that in the culture that we find ourselves in, that is actually an incredibly radical statement. And you need to know this because when you go to work and you go to armature works and you go do all these things that you do and you walk into that place as a follower of Jesus that you're actually, as we'll read in 1 Corinthians 11, by participating with Jesus, you're declaring that there's only one Lord in this universe. And I just want you to know that you don't have to look different from the world to be different from the world. Like you can wear whatever you want, do whatever hair you want, do whatever activities you want. But if you believe that that is true, you are automatically a stranger and alien, as scripture says, in this world. And you need to know that before you step into that place, because if you if you're not prepared for that. It can be hard. You see, because Jesus said all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. It's, it's like not an option. It's coming. And so we need to know why we're willing to take that persecution. Why are we willing to accept criticism? This is why. Because there's one loaf. One Jesus. So we're reminded at this table that we're one body and that you're not actually doing life alone. When you get around the table, you're reminded that the spiritual significance of you being one with God and his people matters because you aren't doing this life alone. And maybe you walked in here today and that's the thing you need to know. That you are not by yourself. That if you are facing depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, any of those things, that there is a God who loves you. And by default, as we are grafted into his family, adopted into his family, we care. And so if you are facing that, we would love to walk that road with you. There's also a great 
theological reality to that in Ephesians 2. This is not going to be on the screen. I want to just walk you through a few of the key things as to why being one body, why Jesus is the one and why it matters. Because in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 it says, As for you, lift up your voice and say me. As for you and me, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. I think sometimes we forget that. In a secular culture like ours where we can get a job and make our own means and solve our own problems and do our own stuff. And when a problem arises, no matter how big it is, we can run to the tools that we have to try to solve that problem. And so really in our culture, only death is the great equalizer. However, death, the last time I checked, is 10 for 10. Right? It's coming. And so even though... We are very self-sufficient. We are yet not in control of that which is most important. We're dead in our transgressions and sins. A little bit farther, it says, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's not popular today. That God would be angry at the things that are broken and sinful and apart from his purposes. It's not popular, but it's true, and it actually matters because we actually do believe that. When someone is raped, we want that God to show up. We don't want the do-whatever-you-want God to show up, do we? No. If, If somebody steals from your house, they break into your house in the middle of the night and take your things and steal your safety... We don't want the God who says, do you, to show up. We want the God of justice to show up. When you are diagnosed with cancer, you want the God who is actively participating in the lives of people, don't you? I do. Man, it, it's, it can be so, so bad that if I'm annoyed with my kids, I'm like, Hold, I, do I not walk around the house? God help me. He usually sends help in the form of Camden. So you need to take a time out. (laughs) We actually believe that. Here's why God can be trusted with that wrath. Okay, It's, It's not in a vacuum. He's not just an angry guy in the sky. Here's why he can be trusted with that wrath. Look at verse 4. Or listen to verse 4. Because of his great love for us. Who is God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace you have been saved. God can be trusted with the wrath because he is trusted with love and mercy. His great love, his rich mercy. That's why we trust him with the hard things. And so that God saves us by faith. And verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace, our shalom, our wholeness. We find everything we need in him. And what did he do with that? Listen to this. His purpose in being our peace has made the two groups one 
breaking down a dividing wall of hostility, creating in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of his household. So we are one people because he did what we're unable to do. And if you don't believe that we're unable to do, I present to you the United States of America and our political party system. We are not able to reconcile the two. We can't. We need something that goes beyond us and creates peace for us. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't vote or do all the things that we do. You absolutely should. And you should follow your God-given convictions, participating with the Holy Spirit. But our peace comes from outside of that. The spiritual reality becomes intensely practical at the communion table because it's not just a theory that I'm saved. It's when I step into my life that I need the Holy Spirit to be there. And it is at the communion table that God shows up. It's radical because if you don't believe in Jesus, this is, this is silly. But we, of course, do. But don't lose the significance that God does all of that in this ordinary act. The second thing. So he shows us that we are actually one because of Jesus. The second thing is that Jesus connects what is bad in this world with what is good. This, this is fundamental to your worldview as a Christian. That everywhere you go, good and evil are commingled. That everywhere you grow, you go, you will be able to find that which you can celebrate and is good, and that which is broken and in need of rescue. Everywhere you go. In Luke chapter 22, verse 14 and 15, Jesus said this before he was about to go and die on a cross for you and me. Here's what he said. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Radically ordinary. Jesus is about to die. He's about to be betrayed. And he's reclining at what? A table. And he said to them, I love these words. Listen to this. I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. What a powerful thing. I, I, in this moment, the thing that I desire the most is to recline at a table and eat this meal with you. He cannot wait to have this meal with them before he suffers the good and the broken co-mingled. The enjoyment of that meal and the reality of suffering. That reality, of course, is rooted in our origin story. The story at the Garden of Eden, where God creates Adam out of the dust of the earth and breathes into him the breath of life. And then out of Adam's own body, he fashions Eve and breathes into her the breath of life. And tells them that they can enjoy everything in front of them except for one thing because there is a commingled aspect of our existence 
that we cannot handle being God. And so wouldn't you know that it's over food that brokenness and sin and tragedy and evil enters the world. So it is no wonder that all of creation is connected. That even from the dust of the earth which we come and the dust of earth which we return is commingled around this table. It's in the very same garden where the devil would bring the most, the worst part of our existence through food. So food brings life and yet it brought death. And so it's no surprise that it's at the table then that Jesus says, I desire to be with you. It's redeeming that which was broken. And just before we participate in the sacred act together, I think it's important for us to recognize the third thing that Jesus still earnestly desires to be with his people. He still wants to be with you today. He wants you to be willing to pause your busy life for long enough that you might taste and see that he is good. See, we come and we take these things into our body because it was his body, because we want to taste and see that he is good and be reminded as we are one people that we are not alone, that our God has not left us to fend for ourselves. Listen, we can strategize and make plans and we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps until the day that we die. And you might accomplish a lot. But 10 out of 10, death will come calling and eternity will be present. And if we are build, and if what we're building in our life outpaces our spirituality and our connectedness to God and each other, we fail. We fail because eternity is so much longer than this life. Because Jesus reminds us in John 15, 5, apart from him, we can do nothing. So when we draw near to the communion table, it's no wonder that when we get to 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells, uh, he's very concerned with how the Corinthian people are approaching the communion table. And when he says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we ought to examine ourselves, it's not just because you need to like check the box of confession. It's that this is the place where Jesus participates with you. And so if you, you feel like Jesus is far, I want you to know that he's near. But he broke down that wall. And you can step over that in faith. Because he did that for you. But I want to give you that opportunity because what, what I think is true is that when this many people get in a room and watch online and gather together, that there is no doubt something in every single one of our hearts that keeps us from experiencing the radical hospitality of the Holy Spirit in our life. Because Jesus pitched this idea that doing life with him, yoking with him is easy and light, free and light. I wonder how many of us feel free and light today. I venture to say not many. 
unless you have no responsibilities. <laughs> Just none of us. Free and light. Is that your reality? I want to give you a moment to examine yourself because I think it's sin that separates us from free and light. That separates us from Jesus. And so one of the practices the ancient church all the way to today has practiced is silence. Solitude. And it's super weird. And if you don't ever do this, it's going to be super weird. But I just want you to know that that's okay. That when there are places that God promises to participate with you, it's worth entering into that place. Even if it's weird. Because Jesus is himself our peace. And we have to slow down long enough that we can taste and see that he is good. So I'm going to give you like a minute to be silent. To listen to the fans blowing. And the occasional child speak. And commune with your Father in heaven. If you've never done that before, it's very easy. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead, you will be saved. And it's in that moment of confession that God acts on your behalf. And the Bible says that he becomes one with you. And so if you've never done that, I would encourage you to do that before we take these together. For the rest of you that are followers of Jesus, I'd encourage you to examine yourself in this moment of silence. That you would confess your sins. That you would invite Jesus. You see, because salvation is not just the confession. It's a posture of your heart. Surrendered to him. Continually confessing that he is Lord. So let's take this minute and then we'll take the elements together. If you'll stay in this posture of prayer with me and grab one of the communion elements near you and peel off that top portion and just hold in your hand that piece of bread and feel it because it was not a theory or an intellectual exercise that went to the cross. It was the body of our Lord Jesus. That went to the cross. And so we hold this and we feel this because we recognize that his body was broken. And so the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 23, Paul reminds us that what he received was from the Lord. And he also is passing on to us. And here's what that is. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. That's why you take bread in your hands. And when he had given thanks, which we've been doing all morning, he broke it. And I would encourage you to just hold that up to your ear and break that, knowing that it was his body broken for you. That you might be one with him and one with each other and have peace. This is my body, which is broken for you. And then he says, do this in remembrance of me. Then it says in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. That's what I just described to you as him going to the cross to make a way for you to be made right with him, creating peace and the possibility that we might live in peace. It's his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven through his church. But he went to the cross to redeem you and adopt you into his family. And so it says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. It says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim, you tell the story of his death until he comes again. Amen.